Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. Today I am really excited to bring you my chat with Marcy Evans who is a dietitian specialising in eating disorders. She's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Marcy has been a specialist in all different kinds of eating disorders for many years and is an amazing supervisor. She teaches into various programs and she also has an incredible online program. So if you're not lucky enough to be local to Marcy, then, um, and we all know, you know, time poor, we have to do things just in our own, you know, when we've got the time and energy for it. So perfect opportunity to jump on and do her online training, which is specifically about eating disorders for dietitians. And her website is www.marci, which is M-A-R-C-I-R-D.com. So Marcy is really passionate about loads of things, including eating disorders and body image. And she calls herself a food and body image healer. And she Know what I just thoroughly agree with that description. I think that is a perfect match for Marcy. She is extremely generous, very warm-hearted, and as you'll hear, our chat was just—it was really wonderful. I had a I had a really really fun time, and you'll learn a lot from Marcy as she speaks here about self-compassion, embodying authenticity, and one of the subjects that she's really passionate about, and that is orthorexia. So I hope you enjoy this interview, and I'll see you on the other side. Bye. Okay, everybody. I have woken up this morning and today I can already tell is going to be an amazing day. And you know why? Because this morning or this evening in US time, I get to speak to my very, very dear colleague and somebody who I'm so proud. I can now call my friend as well, Marcy Evans. So you will probably know Marcy quite well from um, from all the incredible things she does across social media and maybe you've been lucky enough to be in the same room when Marcy has presented at um, a conference or a seminar or one of your local meetings. So Marcy, welcome to The Mindful Dietitian. Oh, Fiona, I'm like beaming over here. If anybody ever needs a boost, just just sort of snuggle up next to Fiona and ask her to introduce you. Um, I, I hope you can feel sort of like my my big beaming smile coming through the airwaves. It's it's absolutely and totally my pleasure to be here with you. Oh, awesome. It's so wonderful to be able to chat. And I know you and I, one thing that you and I share in common is a real passion for, um, for working with other dietitians and for supporting dietitians coming through and who are really, really keen to learn. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that you and I you know, have spoken a lot about. And um, so hopefully today we'll be able to share 
some wonderful ideas and I know you work really hard in a couple of particular areas and you're really at the forefront of, of understanding a lot about how different areas of dietetics intersect in terms of eating behavior and, um, and physical health and mental health and um, so I'm just, I, I, I can't wait to learn to be honest. Oh, well, again, I'm so glad to be here. I know that we're going to have a lot of fun chatting about, we'll see what we chat about. We'll see where the conversation takes us. But, you know, in my dietetics career, I have always been a lone wolf. I've always mm. practiced alone and I've been in a couple of different positions, but I've always had to create my own tribes. And so I just love the fact that podcasting has become such a great way to tribe build and to get to know one another and to learn from each other and to develop friendships and relationships. So um, this this forum and opportunity to be able to share and to learn with each other is just awesome. Oh, I know, isn't it? It's interesting because uh, often when you're working in maybe health at every size and non-diet approach and eating disorders, you, you're not always working in big teams, are you? I mean, you know, if you work in an inpatient setting or an intensive outpatient, you might have other dietitians or psychologists or therapists around you. But for those of us in private practice, it can feel sometimes a bit lonely, can't it? Yeah, I think it can. And it's, and it's interesting, you know, when I said, you know, I've, I've kind of always been a lone wolf dietitian, meaning I've never had dietitian colleagues that I've worked with, um, you know, at the same clinic or, or hospital or treatment facility. Um, and yet, I think people who even do have close colleagues who maybe don't practice health at every size or don't practice with an intuitive eating mindset, also feel very lonely. And so it's not necessarily whether or not you have you know, colleagues who work around the corner. Um, I think it's really easy when you're kind of swimming up the dietetic stream to feel kind of lonely because, you know, the, the work that we do in health at every size, the work that we do in intuitive eating, the work we do to promote mi mindfulness um, is radical. You know, it is, it is a radical movement. It is not the mainstream. And so that in and of itself can feel kind of lonely. Yeah, definitely. I really love your point about that. It's not, it's not only so much about having those people in proximity to you, but it's also the people who you do have in proximity, whether they are aligning with your, with your way of working or whether you feel like you're going to work every day and have to fight a new battle. I mean, that's pretty tough. Absolutely. Yeah. We were kind of chatting, you know, before we started the recording and laughing about the ways in which we practice, you know, we, we practice in a private practice, which is Actually, gosh, I mean, that's a total luxury, right? Because the for the most part, we get to kind of make our own rules and um, do what we feel is best practice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, what we were actually laughing about, Marcy, is that that totally suits us because we get to be uh, literally the, the bosses. We get to say what goes and it kind of suits you and I, doesn't it? It suits lots of people, actually. <laughs> <laughs> suits me very well. <laughs> Don't you tell me what to do. Yeah, I've got an idea of what I'm about. <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely. You get to develop your own your own story and your own way of working, which is just, I mean, it, it, it is a luxury and I often say that. So, Marcy, tell us a little bit about um, your career trajectory. Like, um, you know, you've been in practice for a number of years now. You're not old by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination. Not that there's anything wrong with being old because, you know, wisdom comes with age for sure. I'm not being ageist here, but uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what has led you to the place you are now? 
Sure. Yeah, I would. I'd love to share a little bit of my journey. I was, in fact, just talking with a client earlier today who's who just accepted her first job as a um, as a social worker, and she was feeling, you know, kind of mixed about it because she thought, you know, oh, it, it has this, but it doesn't have that, and you know, I, I maybe feel a little bit ashamed about this part. And I said, listen, most people are not working now where they began in their first job. Some people are, but many people begin in a certain place and find that their journey evolves over time as they evolve. And uh, so I'd love to share a little bit, a little bit of my journey. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back a little bit to my education first. You know, when I was studying to become a dietitian, I really thought that I wanted to be a clinical dietitian. And then during my dietetic internship, I realized how much, not only did I not enjoy it, but I didn't feel effective. I didn't feel particularly good at it. I remember feeling confused and ineffective and um, kind of lost a lot of the time. I just think it didn't naturally sort of mesh with um, my kind of innate skills. And, and it wasn't until I had the opportunity to do a rotation at an eating disorder facility that I realized, oh my gosh, I love this. And that's when I read intuitive eating for the first time. And I just loved being able, I, could, I didn't have the words for it then, but the fact that it was so interdisciplinary and it was psychologically informed and it was relational and it was, it was so much about the relationship more so than just sort of delivering information. And um, I just, it really resonated for me. But my first job was actually, I accepted a position at an outpatient medical facility. I was the only dietitian on staff and I was hired at their um, wellness institute to do preventative uh, nutrition counseling. It was housed within the physical therapy department, and I was working with an exercise physiologist. And I had just begun my own sort of schooling in intuitive eating and non-diet, and yet I was hired to do weight management counseling and you know just kind of general health and wellness. And I was really grappling in that job with just sort of finding my way and sort of figuring out how to incorporate this new information that I had had all of, you know, five years being educated in traditional dietetics. And I, and I really kind of struggled trying to figure it out. And I was trying to sort of mash the two together. And, you know, I don't, I think I did probably fine work along the way. I had opportunities to work in diabetes and cardiovascular disease and um, all of the departments sort of wanted to use my services, which was really, really cool. Um, and then long story short, I ended up moving away and coming out to Boston. I was out in the West Coast then and came out to Boston. And um, I decided I was really clear from my first job that I did not want to work in a clinical setting. And I started looking at non-clinical positions and found a job um, working at a gym and I was doing both nutrition counseling and personal training. And that was the job that I had to get me through my master's degree, which is a fantastic job because it allowed me to sort of build my own practice around uh, graduate school. And in graduate school, I was studying uh, both that was really cool. I got to combine together eating disorders counseling and business entrepreneurship. Mm. And I was going along and, you know, my, my job was fine, but it, um, you know, for me, it was a bit frustrating because the kind of counseling I wanted to do, people really weren't interested in. 
And so, you know, it was great for a period of time to get me through graduate school. And as I was wrapping up graduate school, the long sort of crazy story is that I ended up covering a maternity leave in an eating disorders facility and um, opening up a private practice. Now, there's a lot more details that I won't get into because it's not particularly interesting, but I was juggling a lot of balls. You know, I was, I was finishing up my master's degree. I was starting a private practice. I was covering maternity leave. I had this other job, and I was sort of moving them all, sort of like, um, you know, pieces on a chessboard, mm. and really sort of figuring out where my passion was. And it's interesting that I am an entrepreneur and I do own my own business because I'm relatively risk averse. Um, and so I, I kind of take only very necessary and calculated risks to do the things that I want and do the things that I love. Um, but, you know, there was a period of time before starting graduate school and during graduate school where I was really immersing myself in a lot of reading. And I was reading, um, you know, overcoming overeating and moving away from diets and rethinking thin and, um, you know, all of those sort of early, like, early books texts, yeah, 1980s, early 1990s, mid 90s books. And it was completely and totally resonating on such a deep level. And it was sort of like, as I began to know it. Um, I have just like goosebumps just talking about it. Um, it was like I couldn't unknow it. And mm -hmm. it was like I couldn't, I really couldn't go backwards. And I just found that I was delving sort of deeper and deeper into um, the work that really has paved the way to the work that I do now. And, you know, it is so, I am so fortunate to be able to have my own business. I count myself among the rare few who get to do work that like deeply enriches my soul. Like I, Hey, I have hard days. I have days where I'm irritated days where I'm tired, uh, days where I don't want to write insurance reviews for sure. But big picture, the work I do is so deeply meaningful. Mm. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for it. But one of the things that I wanted to share to the listeners is, um, and I don't know how much this will resonate, but as I was sort of going through you know, my journey, I'm still going through my journey, but you know, several years ago, I really did not connect with the concept of mindfulness. Um, mm -hmm. I, I actually found my early exposure to, to mindfulness and mindfulness based concepts specifically around food, really annoying. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I felt this sort of inner rejection and, and some of you may totally not identify with what I'm about to say, say, and that is great. And that is perfectly wonderful. Um, but, you know, having to do this sort of eat a raisin that take, you know, an hour to do it. Um, I mean, I'm dramatic and being a little bit dramatic, but it just felt pointless to me. Yeah. I, I really, I was just sort of like, why are we doing this? Like, why are you asking me to notice the texture of the raisin on my tongue? Like, this just feels dumb. It feel it felt annoying to me. Like, you know, like, why are you asking me to notice that my feet are touching the floor. Like mm. it did not connect. And it wasn't until I was actually at an eating disorders conference. And this was a really powerful conference for me because two things happened in that conference. Um, the first thing that happened is that I heard a talk from Carolyn Costin and she gave a talk about mindfulness. And I was like, oh, great. Here we go again. Sort of another <laughs> talk. Um, and she shared information that I had never heard before. And what she said that caught my attention was this practitioners who have their own mindfulness practice, the research shows, have clients with better outcomes. 
Mm, wow. And I was like, what? Like, what is that about? How, how is that possible? How is it that my, you know, having a meditative practice or practicing yoga or, you know, noticing my breath, how does that translate into my clients doing better? Mm. And that made me really excited. You know, I wasn't maybe as interested on, on sort of for my own behalf, but for the, on behalf of my clients. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. And so whatever that means. Um, and and you, want your, you wanted your clients to do well and you were willing to do whatever it took to help them do well, right? I was like, what? Like, I got to know more about that. Like, how is that possible? And then at that same conference, Dan Siegel. Oh, love Dan Siegel. Oh, my gosh. If you ever have the opportunity to hear Dan Siegel speak, like, go hear Dan Siegel speak. And he has written many, many books. One of the books he wrote is, was The Mindful Therapist. Oh, I love that book so much. It's a phenomenal book. However, I will say it was a, a bit of a slog for me to get through. Yeah. Not because it's some horrible read. It isn't, but it is, I mean, it's kind of dense. Like mm. there's, there's a lot in there and I, I ate it up and it was in that conference that I began to appreciate what for me resonated around the mindfulness piece, which is the impact it has to change our neurobiology so that we can be more present, so that we can be less reactive, so that we can be more creative, so that we can be more resourceful. And those are the kinds of qualities that make for a phenomenal clinician, um, that we can increase the bandwidth of our, as Dan Siegel calls, window of tolerance for difficult emotions, so that we can be with difficult emotions rather than react to difficult emotions. And, and all of that was so revelatory and so helpful that it doesn't really matter if you're noticing the raisin or you're noticing your breath or you're noticing your feet on the floor, that it is the practice of a being with and observing and staying with what is, that that's not a natural state of our mind, but practicing that is what over time helps to shape our neurobiology in ways that are extremely powerful and extremely positive. And so I just wanted to share that, that if you sort of have a little bit of a, you know, maybe mixed relationship with the concept of mindfulness, that's okay. Um, you know, we all have our own journeys and maybe just sort of finding the pieces that really resonate for you um, is really important that what resonates for another person isn't necessarily what's going to feel meaningful uh, for you. So hope maybe that, maybe that feels helpful for someone. Yeah. I love that Marcy, because I think, um, as dietitians, we love absorbing knowledge. Like we love absorbing skills and knowledge and things that can really help us be, be better clinicians, but it's interesting. And I really love that you raised this point because I, uh, talk about mindfulness a lot, as you know, um, and I talk about the importance of it in terms of the way we are with our clients. So, um, you know, what, what I'm noticing amongst dietitians or what I, yeah, what I observe is that we, we love the idea of mindfulness and we love the idea particularly of mindful eating, but when it comes to actually engaging in that practice ourselves and the skills and the, uh, the way it can change the way we are, in that room with somebody who might be going through a really tough time, that yeah. is the, the like that's that's the goal. That that's yeah. the actual magic, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's also, you know, when I'm having my own, you know, feelings of countertransference. So for those people who maybe aren't familiar with that term countertransference is that in a counseling relationship, it's normal. It's not a bad thing at all. It is a normal occurrence that a client is going to have feelings that are projected onto you um, and that you are going to have your own set of feelings and reactions to your client. And so um, as you are able to be an observer of your own reactions, an observer of your own tendency to want to jump in, an observer of your tendency to want to fix without listening, that being able in the moment to sort of watch yourself and allow yourself to maybe take a breath breath rather than jumping in or to be able to sort of sit back and really be present and listen rather than trying to figure out a response, um, that your capacity to grow as a counselor, um, just really, it, it's leaps and bounds. Yeah, and it doesn't, uh, the, the area that you work doesn't matter. You know, if you're working, say, in a diabetes clinic or you're working in uh, eating disorders or private practice or sports nutrition, it really doesn't matter. The, I, I think sometimes we can, we can feel like, oh, this stuff is good, but, you know, my clients, they, they don't, you know, they, they're not highly distressed or, you know, they're not having that much, that many problems with food. I'm really an educator. But I think that mindfulness, it offers us so many skills, not only in our professional life, but also personally. Like, what, what have you noticed in your, in your personal life? Oh, you know, that's a really, that's a really thoughtful question. I think that as I have um, continued to try my best to stay open to a practice of mindfulness, and I, and I say that very intentionally, um, you know, Fiona, I know that you have a really intentional um, daily mindfulness practice, and you really make space and time for that. Um, I would say for me, it happens in much smaller moments, and I really have to work to to make it a part of my day to day. You know that I really consciously say, you know what, phone and internet is going to go off, and you're going to lay here quietly for a few moments. Um, I even have moments in between sessions where I might say. Um, okay, your tendency would be to finish up a session and immediately get on your computer or multitask before the next session. Mm. And I have to really say to myself, okay, you were noticing during the last session, you were observing that your back wasn't feeling good. How about doing a forward fold in between the next session rather than just being right back on the computer? Um, so I just wanted to make that note that, that for me, it, it, is, it requires some real consistent intention and sort of self-motivation to practice mindfulness um, and that it, it's okay if it happens in, in small ways. But I think my capacity um, to tolerate the discomfort um, that just comes with the challenges of life, whether it's feeling like you've disappointed someone or feeling like, you know, I've misspoken or, or feeling like I've, you know, made a mistake, that I am much better able to just be with those feelings and not react to them. Yes. You know, so even a silly example of, you know, if I, if I got an email from someone that maybe just sort of, you know, ticked me off and I sort of want to furiously write my response. (laughs) I have gotten now myself to say, when you're feeling a high degree of emotion, um, you're going to take space and you are going to, you can write it and delete it. But you're going to wait, depending on sort of the the intensity of the emotion, maybe half a day, maybe a day, maybe a couple of days. Mm. 
uh, before reacting. And I think before I would have had this, this need to be able to sort of, um, write a response really quickly. And I think now I have a better ability, uh, to take a little bit of space and not just react. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that it's helped me, you know, in my professional life, but also in my personal life, um, even though I'm still working on this, I think it's helped me to be a better listener. Mm-hmm. Just in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To really listen to what people are saying and for there to be so much more room for listening and empathizing mm-hmm. rather than trying to fix or, or give, um, give advice. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh... I found similar to you, I found a great gift in just noticing my own experience, um, whether that's with a friend or, or my husband or particularly probably my kids, um, you know, and understanding that my reactivity is simply my reactivity. It's a habitual response based on, um, you know, my brain going offline and as Dan Siegel would say, and, yeah. um, and giving myself the space to simply notice that, that I've gone offline and to, and to be able to step back and respond rather than react. So I'm similar to you. Actually, do you know what? I, I probably actually, you've reminded me of something that maybe I need to be a little bit more overt about. And that is that um, my mindfulness practice is not dissimilar to yours in lots of ways, Marcy, in the sense that, yeah, I do, I, I do actually make time to do, for example, some um, embodied movement. But for me, if I can get down on the floor and do two cat cows or do mm. one down dog or hang out, uh, at quote unquote, hang out, because it's not always hanging out for people, I get that, in child's pose, you know, or in um, a lying, you know, just, just lying down on my back for literally um, one minute, then that is that is uh, what I can do for that day. Um, mm. So I I would love to say that I you know spend twenty minutes meditating every day. I get up at five thirty. I start the day like that. But you know what? That's not the truth. Actually, the truth is that I, I too, I have to make time. And that's the difference, I think, is when you have a dedicated mindfulness practice, it actually does take um, some dedication and there is a deliberate nature to it. So whenever I'm speaking with colleagues or my clients, I do, um, I do try to paint an honest picture about what it looks like and that at first, especially at first, it can feel a little bit forced or it can feel a little bit, you have to actually deliberately make room. And that deliberate nature of it, to be honest, I feel like it's still very much a part of my life. And like you, I have to be aware of those urges just to jump on the phone between sessions or quickly write that letter because I can see that I'm not going to have time for it later in the day. Or um, if I don't do it now, I'll forget it. That's one of my soft points is if I don't say this now, if I don't write that email now, if I don't make that phone call now, I will forget it. And what mindfulness has taught me is that um, I I can find room for that and that that urgency is simply coming from, it's coming from a good place, that sense of urgency, because I don't want to forget things. It's actually one of the thing, one of the aspects that I, I fear most is forgetting something. 
and um, you know so so I just um, so thank you so much for for saying that and I just really want to be honest about my own practice too and that yes yeah, some days I do find 20 minutes to sit down and do a mindful meditation but you know what oh my god if that happens once a week I am so, I'm so lucky really yeah yeah and I, and I think that you know having that intentionality is so important mm. and that you can have intentionality in small moments. Yes. And those moments really matter. And I think that, you know, one of the things I was thinking as I was listening to you, that I was sort of reflecting on your question of how has this helped me personally? Um, I think it's helped me make some positive movement towards being able to be reflective of um, sort of my deficits without getting defended mm. and to be able to say, wow, yeah, I can see how that was a real overreaction there. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about what was happening inside of me to have reacted in such a big way. Mm. Um, and that's of course, not all of the time. It's certainly not that I, you know, we're all, a, you know, a work in progress and we're all always going to be on a journey of some sort, but I just feel that I have more, room to be curious about maybe sort of not my best moments or moments that I'm not necessarily proud of and to find a little bit more self-observation and, and curiosity. And I would say that's really dovetailed with um, the past few months where I've really dug in deeper into the literature around self-compassion and yes. how transformative that's been. I mean, that's just for me sort of the, the bedrock of my own relationship to um, spirituality and um, just resonates for me very, very deeply. I feel like it's, it's really helped transform my relationship with myself, you know, the, my relationship um, to my clients, you know, to important people in my life. Um, you know, and we were talking about earlier sort of getting older and I'm, as we're recording this, I'm getting ready to have a birthday this weekend. Oh, that's exciting. Happy birthday, Marcy. Thank you. And how grateful I feel to get older because as you get older, you go through, um, you know, your own set of life challenges. And, you know, when you're going through something really challenging, it's awful and you wouldn't ask for it and you want to, you want to get out of it. But when you're able to get to the other side of something really painful and really hard, you know, there is a degree of, um, of gratitude of going through hard things because you do develop wisdom and insight. And for me, as I've kind of gone through some difficult things, you develop more compassion in general. And I think um, those are real gifts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a, completely alongside you in the sense that self-compassion um, self-compassion for me too has opened up those doors of being able to understand my own experience and respond with kindness rather than with criticism. And I, I just absolutely adored the way you talked about being reflective of your deficits without getting defended. And what a beautiful way to put it because this, these are the very uh, ideas that we can bring into our practice once we understand it for ourselves for our clients too who might struggle with um, berating themselves or criticizing themselves around maybe a food choice or maybe some um, movement choices um, so when when we understand it and 
when we can embody that and bring that in a very authentic way into our practice, then it's, it's such a great gift for our clients because we can explain it or we can give examples, not necessarily from our, from our personal experience, but we can give examples that, that really resonate with them and, uh, and offer them opportunities to give themselves the space to reflect with curiosity without sinking into um, criticism. Because I often say to my clients, I say, what do you learn, learn from that self-criticism? And they, they often will just say, well, I don't learn anything. It just makes me feel bad. And then that's the opportunity to, to just do, as I call it, the smile and nod, <laughs> quote unquote. <laughs> the smile and nod. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but when we can find that, that little crack, that little space, that little pause or a breath or whatever you want to call it, um, then it opens up those opportunities to respond in a different way and it's only through curiosity only through asking hmm what's actually going on for me there that we can then uh, learn and that uh, underpins I guess behavior change right oh that is such a lovely lovely way I think to describe how being invested and actively engaged in your own process and your own work, how it just informs the work that you do with your clients. And that when we're working with our clients, we're doing so much modeling. Mm, and you know that in the conversation, you know, when you're working with a client and your response is genuinely compassionate and it's genuinely curious and it's genuinely non-judgmental, even if it's not overtly taught, you know, I hope that you can develop this sort of, you know, compassionate, curious voice, um, that they are seeing another way of being, mm. another way of relating to their behaviors, to their thought processes and show up it sort of opens up and shows, um, yeah, just another way to relate to the world, another way to relate to their bodies, to their food choices, to their movement habits, just like you were describing. Yeah. yeah. And through people's, um, you know, quote unquote recovery, whether that's eating disorder recovery or whether that's um, dieting recovery or, you know, whatever, whatever they feel like they would prefer to leave behind in order to move towards a, a more positive or more um, uh, embodied or intimate relationship with food and and eating and their body then it's we all exist in this culture don't we so and there's a bombardment from from media and from just just our wider from our wider diet culture and certainly for some people their immediate immediate family um, or friendship circles so to be able to be mindful also in uh, relationships um, or in conversations um, creates uh, an opportunity to build skills to live in this very difficult culture. Yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. You know, I was thinking about one of the things that, that you and I thought we might um, discuss tonight was the topic of orthorexia. Yes. Something that I've been you know, talking a fair bit about in some presentations that I've had the opportunity to give and how as people, you know, can easily find themselves 
having a really hard time figuring out their relationship to food and their relationship to their bodies, given the culture that we're in, you know, that intersects with mindfulness so beautifully because mindfulness is about observing what is actually happening for you in this moment, Mm. as opposed to the narrative of the shoulds or the ought tos um, and how powerful that is when I'm helping my clients really discover what is their own food philosophy? You know, what, what is actually right for them as opposed to what is often modeled, you know, in our culture, uh, which is, you know, often very disordered. I love that idea of the food philosophy. Do you mind if I borrow that? I love that question. It's oh, awesome. Totally borrow it. I was <laughs> totally borrow it. I am. Um, I, I, I don't feel that that's um, copyrighted. <laughs> you have not <laughs> trademarked that, Marcy? <laughs> not trademarked it. Everybody can use it if it feels useful. You know, but I was talking with a client um, a couple weeks ago, and um, she is in recovery from anorexia, and she has been noticing uh, what we would call some, some orthorexic tendencies slipping in. And, um, actually I wonder if before I launch into this little, little vignette, should we define and talk about what orthorexia is? Oh, Marcy, that would be so helpful because, um, uh, there'll be probably lots of people who've heard of it, but are not sure exactly what it is. So, oh yeah, love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I was ready to dive in and then I thought, hold on a minute. Not everybody is, is, uh, doing eating disorders work that one of the things Mm -hmm. that I love so much about uh, the concept of the mindful dietitian is that, like you said, it really reaches across, it can straddle any avenue of dietetics that you might be working in. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Marcy. Yeah. So, um, you know, orthorexia uh, is not an actual eating disorder diagnosis as of now. It is not something that you would find in uh, a diagnosis manual. Um, However, there are some proposed criteria that some people have made to kind of define what it is. And generally, excuse me, what orthorexia is, is really just this sort of obsession with eating correctly, eating healthfully, exercising in a way that's going to promote the most health. You can almost think about it a little bit like anorexia. And that, but that you would substitute weight for health and that sort of real uh, difference between the two is that it's not about being thin. It's not about weight. It's about being healthy. Mm -hmm. And um, again, there's no, there's no formalized diagnosis. There's some proposed criteria, for instance, that it's a compulsive behavior or, or an obsession, a preoccupation that is obsessed with dietary practices that promote optimum health, optimum health, um, that when a person sort of has these self-imposed rules and when those are broken, it creates a really profound feelings of anxiety and shame. Mm-hmm. And that often these sort of restrictions or rules tend to progress and become more severe over time. So much so that it's actually um, worsening a person's health, whether it be their physical health or emotional and mental well-being. Um, so that's a, a little bit of an overview. Um, is, is that helpful? Do you have any questions on that or anything you want me to clarify about the definition? The oh, working no. 
I should no, say. No, that working definition is absolutely fantastic. And I think that, that uh, you're, you're talking about it, you know, if you were to think about anorexia, um, this is the kind of health version of that. So it's an, an over-focus and obsession on, on the behaviours that one person believes leads to optimum health. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, great. great. Said. And if anybody is interested in reading the research, um, if they they can look up uh, the name Thomas Dunn, D-U-N-N, -N, and Stephen Bratman. And Thomas Dunn is out of the University of Colorado. And in fact, if you go to, I think it's like orthorexia.com, that's Stephen Bratman's website, and you can click on a link that takes you to a survey that actually allows you to participate in research to help them define um, what orthorexia might be defined as. And so you can participate anonymously. I did it. It takes less than 10 minutes. Um, oh, that's but, great. Because the more we understand about it, the better, really. Yeah. Well, it's important, too, because orthorexia is now getting sort of tossed around so much. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because a lot of the, the research, well, all of the research, essentially, that's been done on orthorexia has been done without a formalized definition. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to throw all the research out the window, but it does have limited utility because we don't have an, an established definition yet. So we kind of want to, we want to hold it lightly. Um, so that's a little bit on the, on the definitions of orthorexia. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's really difficult about orthorexia is that we live in a culture that is actually quite obsessed with health. Um, Western culture is, is really obsessed with health and longevity and really obsessed with attaining sort of idealistic standards, certainly aesthetic ideal standards, we know that. And it's very also normative, um, unfortunately, for people to be complaining about their bodies and for people to be sort of, you know, reading and doing diet books and sort of, you know, talking with one another about all this stuff in a way that can make it very difficult for a person with orthorexia to feel that what they're engaging in is a problem mm. because it, it can feel affirmed all around them. And so it's quite sneaky. And one of the things that the research has shown is that orthorexia can be a bit of a gateway into the diagnosis of a DSM uh, eating disorder, whether that's anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And it is also found in people who have been in recovery from an eating disorder. And it's this sort of sneaky way, this sort of socially sanctioned way for their eating disorder to live on. Yes. And with, you know, health really becomes a surrogate for their own sense of well-being and um, their own sense of self, their own sense of accomplishment, their own sense of feeling good enough um, in the world, and that that is all channeled through, you know, being the healthiest eater, you know, being the strongest exerciser, you know, having the, the most ideal body composition. And, and it can happen in these very, very sneaky ways. So, you know, I was working with this client who was realizing she had been reading some blogs and, and actually a coworker had en encouraged her to watch um, a documentary. And that was really getting into her head in a way that was not helpful and was kind of reigniting those vulnerabilities inside of herself, that those ways in which she felt 
feel sort of chronically not good enough and that optimizing her health or her healthy choices that, well, I could have that, but it would be even healthier if I ate that, um, had sort of snuck in. And we had to really do, and we are doing a lot of work of helping her recenter and really bringing mindfulness into the work around what are your food philosophies? What actually matters to you? Not what the documentary said you should care about, not what the latest research study says you should care about, but if we really think about your core values and we really think about um, you know, your risk factor of having had a, a, a serious eating disorder, what actually makes you healthy in a really big picture sort of way? healthy in your mind, healthy in your body, healthy in your spirit, and using mindfulness to be able to craft and create um, an eating philosophy and because she's a runner, an exercise philosophy that she can all of these messages about what we quote unquote should be doing, she doesn't have to waver. She doesn't have to worry. She doesn't have to spot check. She doesn't have to hedge. You know, she can stay firm and stand strong in her roots of what she know, knows actually brings her health. And so that just sort of made me think a little bit, you know, when we were talking about sort of the, the intersection of, of mindfulness and, and the orthorexia piece. And I think that the, the two go together in, in a really important way. Oh, I love that. I've I've uh, written down a couple of things that I thought were just just amazing that you just spoke about. And one of the things that really um, struck me was you talking about it being a surrogate for not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. I I see that so often that that having a food project or a body project. Mm allows people to, in a superficial and, and actually, it doesn't actually resolve it, but in an attempt to resolve chronic under underlying feelings that a person grapples with, mm. which by the way, we all have. We all have our tape. We all have our narration. They just come in different forms. Um, but because we live in a culture that so overvalues um, health and aesthetics and appearance and accomplishment, um, in a way that is very different from other cultures, yes. that it's easy for that to get played out and for it to seem normal and okay. And um, the hard thing and the devastating thing is um, that it, it just can't resolve those underlying feelings. And so it's this constant, it sort of reinforces this constant chronic feeling of not good enoughness. Hmm. I really love how you then went on and talked about, you know, so what do we talk about? Because you know, it, it, I can see how easy it would be maybe to get caught up in that conversation around maybe uh, myth busting or um, talking about, um, you know, the holes in the research, uh, you know, that your client right. might be getting caught up. And I can see how easy as dietitians it might be to get distracted by that stuff. But I loved how you made that shift to mm -hmm. focusing on what the client feels is most important. You know, mm -hmm. you spoke about a food philosophy, an eating philosophy, an exercise philosophy, and coming back to core values. So can you explain a little bit about how you might explore that a little? Because I, because that is really the core of, of how to shift from what is what feels like quote unquote the problem, i.e. the body or my food choices, 
and shifting into uh, a space where people can feel supported and held and contained. So can you talk us, talk us through a little bit about how you would explore that? Sure. Yeah, I'll do my best. And, and if you want me to talk a little bit more about, about something, you know, please, you know, guide me along. Sure. But in this, in this particular instance, what I will say is that she and I did spend some time on some specific messages she'd gotten in this documentary um, and that she was really kind of grappling with. And so I did share with her, you know, my perspective and my understanding. I mean, I'm a dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition. I do, I do yes. have a, you know, a science background um, and I do read the research. So, you know, I'm able to do that. And then your point that you're making, I just want to underline your point is that it's okay to spend a bit of time there, but the easy trap that a dietitian can fall into is, is forgetting that that is all the surface stuff, all of that holds meaning. And that if we get lost in the thing, whatever the thing is, whatever the, the fat is of the day or the factoid or sort of the question or the hole in the research, we're missing the larger issue. And mm -hmm. so the question being, how do you kind of bridge over um, to a deeper and more meaningful conversation. And that's not to say um, or, or undermine the importance of kind of doing some of that myth busting. We have to do some of that psychoeducation. Um, but the way I did it with this client is that, you know, I, I shared some of that, but I said to her, what did, it, what did it make you feel or what did it make you notice inside of yourself as you were watching that documentary? Mm. And she said, well, I noticed that I felt really mixed. There was a part of me that got excited and, the, and then there was a part of me that felt really bad. Mm. And I said, you know, well, you know, tell me about the part that made you feel really bad. And she said, well, it just, you know, kind of reiterated these feelings that I have that I'm not good enough. And I started then feeling guilty about this food choice and this food choice. And because I know this client really well, I was able to say, you know, it really is striking how your sense of self-worth felt so still connected to what you had or hadn't eaten, mm. how this feels like an awfully sneaky way for you to kind of, you know, try to prove yourself and to try to feel good enough and to try to feel um, like you've really accomplished something and that that is, is accomplished by your food choices you know, but we've, we've learned a lot about that. And she was really surprised to have that reflected back. She said, I hadn't realized it. I hadn't realized that it was sort of a, another form of trying to prove myself and, and, and feel good enough. And we were able to then sort of separate out what she was hoping the food would accomplish for her, but could certainly never really accomplish, which is resolve that chronic feeling of not feeling good enough and help her sort of put her food choices back into perspective and then talk about um, the work that she could do in therapy to continue to explore that chronic vulnerability and the ways in which, you know, we do that in terms of connecting to her values and her relationship to food and her relationship to exercise. So we were, I always come back to values, always, always in my work. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we were able to talk about what are the things that we've talked about that are meaningful to you. And she said, um, freedom, you know, and spontaneity and fun and pleasure. 
And she was able to notice that sort of the track she had gone down after watching this documentary was a total 180 from those values and how yes. that didn't feel good. And to really say, wow, look at that intuitive sense that you had that something really wasn't right mm -hmm. and that those shoulds were getting in the way and that, and that they were, you know, the, those messages were actually in contrast with what your, what your values are and that you feel your best. You feel your most like yourself when you're living out of your core values mm. and what are ways in which that, that you can practice that in relationship to your running in relationship to your food choices. And for her, you know, it was around Easter. So that was all about Cadbury eggs. Yes, <laughs> so that of course. How important it is to be eating Cadbury eggs on a regular basis. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was thinking that it actually takes a really brave person, doesn't it, to be able to, um, to be able to sit with you and explore this, especially when our culture is so strong and maybe they're even in a subculture, maybe an athletic subculture or, you know, CrossFit or gym or, uh, you know, whatever little subculture they um, might belong to that reinforces the very things that feed straight into that not good enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for dietitians who are maybe listening and they haven't um, explored any of the values-based work, you can do a Google search and um, search for a values assessment. And I really, really encourage you to do your own values assessment. Um, and I have a version of it. Essentially, it's, it can be really helpful because you can get a long list of values and you're going to read through those values and you're going to be like, yeah, they all sound pretty good. You know, I value honesty. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I value forgiveness. I, you know, I value uh, whatever it is. And then it's going to be a long list. And most of the things you're going to say, yeah, I value that. And then the challenge is to narrow it down to 10 and then narrow it down to five and then narrow it down to three. And doing that with yourself and with your clients is so powerful. And then you keep coming back to that and you realize we feel our, our least happy and our most dissonant and our mo most unwell when we're living out of alignment of our core values. Mm -hmm. And then you can pull that values work into your nutrition counseling. So for me, one of my core values, in fact, one of my top three, and this might sound silly, um, is fun. Yes, actually. me too. Yes. <laughs> I really value having fun. Mm -hmm. That means a lot to me. And if I'm not having healthy doses of fun, and if I'm not having laughter and, and levity and adventure, um, I, I not, I'm not at my best, you know? And so being able to see, you know, how is a person's uh, relationship to their health how is it weaving into their, their most core and truest values? Well, now I've found out one more thing that we share in common because that's in my top three as well. And like you were saying, it, it brings in that sense of lightheartedness, adventure, new experiences. Um, and I'm not sure about you, Marcy, but what I find is that when I do this activity with um, either clients individually or in a group, fun is often one of them that they say they are, that they really value, but they're the furthest away from. So isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Mm. And the ways in which we feel compelled to follow certain rules mm. um, because exercise should look a certain way. Mm. My plate should look a certain way when in reality that those are cultural constructs and you can make it any way that you want. 
I wonder whether people feel like fun is frivolous and a bit of a, and a, bit of a luxury. I, I think so. You know, when I have shared that with clients, um, and I don't always, you know, I try to be thoughtful about, you know, the things that I share and don't share and why I do it. Um, but when I share that with clients, most of them are shocked. It's mm-hmm. like of all the values that a person could have, fun. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, it seems a little ridiculous. It's like they're trying not to judge me, but they're judging me. Yes. Like really, you know, what about honesty? You know, what about generosity? What about authenticity? You know, how is it that fun made it, you know, made the final cut? <laughs> no, I'm exactly the same. I, and I think that, um, I think what, what, um, I was going to say what plays into fun. And of course that, that of course came into it is play, not taking things too seriously. I think there's, there's definitely that strong part of all of us as humans that we live in a culture that encourages us to take things so seriously, everything so serious. And that's not to say that there are some really, um, there are some really difficult things that we all have to deal with as humans, but unless we can uh, balance that out with fun and play and lightheartedness and stuff that is not so serious, then I think that's when we got get bogged down and, and that feeds straight into mood disorders, anxiety, depression, into those things that can really cripple cripple us. Yeah, absolutely. Laughing for me is a huge, huge, huge release. And I will tell you, I one of the reasons why I love my job is because my clients are all so amazing. I mean, they're all so smart and so, so interesting. And um, often I just have these phenomenal senses of humor. And we we can go from one minute, you know, having tears in our eyes and having these you know, hard conversations or devastating conversations or really serious conversations to absolutely and totally cracking up together. And um, it's like, we, we do have to be able to have both. Yes. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, you know, I, I experience exactly that same thing. And I do notice that, um, you know, my very, very smart clients, which a lot of them are definitely, um, you know, they, they've got, this incredible way of looking at life through a very humorous, a humorous, light-hearted lens. So, being able to draw that into, being able to draw that out, you know, expand upon that uh, intuitive sense of desiring light-heartedness through humor. And I think what a lot of um, what a lot of people say to me is that I don't want to feel as if I'm not taking my own experiences seriously, nor the experiences of others. And what I try to bring in is the idea of when we're using humor to deflect and when we're using humor to connect. Oh, that's such a lovely saying. Oh, I'm going to use that. Okay, we'll swap. We'll do a library swap. How's that? That's beautifully stated. And... And um, in mindfulness, there you go. Mind, mindfully, when am I using humor to push away? And sure. then, yeah, mm-hmm. and then wh- how can I use humor to bring in towards me things that, that nourish me, people, mm-hmm. experiences, um, yeah, mm-hmm. all the things that help enrich our lives and make life meaningful at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I think, you know, clients, you know, people are so intuitive and that they sense so much. I know my clients are very feeling and very intuitive and that, you know, they can feel whether or not I am, 
you know, genuinely present with them and, and listening and, and with them. And that bringing in some laughter and some humor, it does not get in the way of that. You know, that we can absolutely have and must have both. Yes. Yes, I agree. And being able to, like you say, being able to come to that with authenticity um, gives people the, the really, really strong and solid idea that you're with them you're with them and that you will cry with them, you will laugh with them. And what a privilege at the end. Of, it's such a privilege. Oh my gosh. An enormous privilege. Mm. That is how I feel. That is so how I feel in my work. I'm just like privileged to be in these, the, the intimate process of, of my clients' lives. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, Marcy, so it's 2017. <laughs> You'll be well aware of this. It is the year 2017. <laughs> <laughs> you better be aware of it. It better be, exactly. And I'm curious to know, what does this year hold for you? Oh, personally or professionally? Uh, how about professionally? What events will you be going to? What are you, what are you up to this year? 2017 so as we're recording this it's may and this year already has been a total joy i have had the opportunity um to be able to share things that i've been learning and i've been teaching dietitians about um all sorts of things related specifically to to eating disorders treatment and about gut health and I've got a few more things on my calendar on um, the topic of, of gut health, actually. And Fiona, are we going to do the big? Marcy, shall we? The yes, big reveal. I'll Woo! let you. I'll I'm let like, you. Okay, I'm like I'm like squealing over here. So the, the biggest thing that Fiona and I, the thing that I am, I will say, no, no offense to anyone, but the thing I am most excited about is that November 1st and 2nd, Fiona and I are doing a body image training workshop for dietitians. And we are so beyond, excited. beyond, beyond excited, like over the moon, like we can't stand how excited we are about mm-hmm. this. <laughs> I know. It's so cool. And what I should tell everybody is how this actually came about because we were just, I don't even know what we were chatting about. And I think I... I, I reached out to you and I said, "Hey, Marcy." Yeah. N- not exactly in that creepy tone that I just <laughs> that I just said. Then. <laughs> hey, Marcy, how about this? I, I said, "Um, I've got this really maybe it seems like a bit of a wild idea. You seem like a bit of a wild woman. How about do you want to hear my wild idea?" Marcy is like, "Sure. Well, you know, let me hit me, hit me, sister." So I said, "You know, coming to the states." you seem cool. I'm pretty cool. We seem both excited about the same thing. How about we run an event and kind of it snowballed from there really, didn't it? Totally did. I got your message because we were certainly friendly with one another, but it isn't as if we had ever had the opportunity to get to really know each other. Then you had this crazy idea. And I was like, Fiona Sutherland has got my number. She <laughs> has a very accurate read on Miss Marcy Evans. And I was immediately, I mean, I think I wrote back instantaneously, which probably was not my most mindful moment. But when I get really 
I really excited. I just immediately responded back and I was like, yes, absolutely. And then we were able to hop on our first call and get really clear about, well, what do we want to share? What are we really passionate about? And I know that we both felt extremely passionate about working with fellow dietitians on body image work because um, so many dietitians just don't feel like they know how to do it. Right. Right. And maybe even feel like they shouldn't do it, you know? And so we we're going to like myth bust that baby, that it is totally in the wheelhouse of a dietitian to do Abs. body. Absolutely. We're going to shoot that shit right out of here. <laughs> it is absolutely in our scope of practice. And it's, um, you know, when, when you are with another body in the room, you are working with bodies. You're working with the way people feel about their bodies and the very intimate nature of feeding oneself um, is very tied in with the way we feel about our bodies. So um, what, what, what do you think people can expect, Marcy, apart from lots of gags and lots of laughs? Oh, absolutely. There will be plenty of levity and laughter for sure. Um, but what, you know, I know that we're both really interested in doing, I, I know both of us are science nerds at heart because mm -hmm. all day most dietitians, I shouldn't say all, most are, um, that we are really going to get into the current state of the research. We are going to talk about assessing, and we are going to be talking about all of the incredible toolbox of interventions that you can share with your clients to help them the way that we talk about it. I know, Fiona, we use really similar, similar language, is talk about healing. Yes. It's a process of healing and um, really partner and feel like you know how to partner in the complicated work that body image is because it is complicated work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm excited to share that you've been so, so gracious to say, yes, we can build this as a part of the workshop, is that I have developed a sort of a food and how, how do I want to frame it? Maybe I need to come up with a really, a really great name for it, but essentially like a, a body image healing paradigm. Essentially. Oh, I love that. Oh, oh my gosh. Model. I'm excited. <laughs> a model, a model for body image healing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I have found this conceptual model to be very helpful for me and I've had, found it to be very helpful for my clients, and I just used it in a workshop that I did with a colleague of mine, my dear, dear colleague, Deb Schachter, um, for a workshop that we gave to a, a room full of dietitians last week. Now, what do you want to add, Fiona? What did I leave out? What else can they expect? What else can I expect? Um, I think, uh, well, what, what people can expect is to leave feeling more confident and to leave feeling more equipped with the language and ways of working that feel authentic to you. So it, we're, not, we're not offering a one-stop shop, this is what you should be saying and doing. What we want to offer is a, a range, a wide range of ideas, and some of them will resonate more with participants than others. So some of them might be didactic, some of them might be experiential. Um, so people can expect to participate in, uh, it, it's, a particip it's going to be participatory. And um, in saying that, you know, we, we um, we, we will invite you to explore uh, your own relationship with your own body and what that means in terms of bringing that into the room. But um, this is not a big giant 
these days are not big giant um, therapy sessions in the sense that you will have to share that with other people. You don't need to be scared of that. Um, no, but no. it's an invitation. Yeah, an invitation simply to explore how our own relationships and how our own histories um, living within our own bodies can help to shape and build our sense of being with another person's body. Um, mm. So, so yeah, and you can expect delicious food. And uh, and we are going to be holding this, I'm not sure if we mentioned it, right in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we left that part out. It is going to be in New York, New York. It's going to be in New York. So if you are in Australia, I would suggest you get your flight toot sweet ladies and gents, and if you are in the US or Canada or actually wherever you are in the world, November 1st, November 2nd, Manhattan, um, and it's just, one thing that we really should mention is that it is just prior to the Binge Eating Disorder Conference, um, which is going to be held on November 3rd and 4th in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so, and we'll both be, you know, going to that. That is incredible. So it's not only um, BEDA, it's also NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorders Association. Is that correct? Is that what NIDA stands for? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, you nailed it. Oh, 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 can I share the, the other really exciting news that I haven't even told you yet? Oh, I received approval yesterday from the, no, from the Commission on Dietetics Registration that I am a CEU provider, so you will have CDR-approved CEUs oh my for the half event. Yeah, yes. that is massive. So if it, does that just apply to U.S. dietitians? Or is it Canadian as well? I No, I believe it's just anybody who has their license through the Commission on Dietetic Registration, which I would guess is probably all of the U.S. dietitians. Yeah, perfect. And I do know there are some Australians that are planning on coming, so that will, um, that will be your um, CPD hours as well, accessible CPD hours, which is um, really valuable for us to those hours. So, um, yeah, we'll be releasing all information about that at the end of May to register. Um, and so watch this space. Yes. Yay, 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 yay. yay Thank you. Yay. Um, Marcy, I mean, you and I have literally in the past talked for hours and we can continue to talk for hours. This is just, you know, we're little chatterboxes. Um, but... Thank you so, so much for being so generous with your experience, with your knowledge, and most importantly, with your wisdom. I have personally learned so much from you, um, not only up until today, but today I was like, wow, I didn't think about saying it in that way. Oh my gosh, that's given me a great idea. Ooh, that reminds me of that client. So I'm just, I'm just so appreciative to, um, to have you here today, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, it's, it's again, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And the, the wonderful thing about, uh, you know, being connected and you and I being connected virtually um, are the ways in which we get to establish deep and meaningful relationships with people who are, who are doing the work and it's reciprocal. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, a it's wonderful if I have something to offer and also wonderful um, all of the times when I get to receive. So, so thanks again. And um, one thing know, I forgot, Marcy, oh my gosh, I forgot. How can people find you? Because you've, oh. also, you've also got a little announcement, don't you, about something new that's coming along? Oh my gosh, that's so thoughtful. Yeah. I would have just hung up and forgot all about it. So <laughs> I'll see you 
I would love it. I would love it if any dietitians would be interested in connecting with me via social media. As Fiona mentioned, I've got two professional loves. I always say this. I um, love doing my individual clinical clinical work with clients. And then I also love supporting dietitians in, in their growth and in their work. Um, and so you can find me at marcyrd.com, which is M-A-R-C-I-R-D.com. And then all of my social media channels are marcyrd. So you, you kind of can't miss it. And, um, you know, I have an online training institute that I developed and, um, I have a five part, um, training for dietitians or dietitians to be or dietetic students on how to counsel people with eating disorders. And then in probably a month, I'm hoping I'm going to have a brand new online course that is on the intersection between digestive disorders and eating disorders. Um, and that's my new exciting thing. And I'm going to be having a brand new website and brand shift and all of a whole new sort of changeover, which I'm super, super excited about. And I'm hoping it's all going to go live either at the end of this month or the beginning of June. So fingers crossed. Oh, that's amazing, Marcy. So this is a form of transformation. That's good, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. It's, it's super exciting transformation. Transformation. It's all brand new. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And I can um, really, really vouch for Marcy's um, online training in eating disorders. It is really incredible. And no matter where you are in the world, it doesn't matter if you're in the UK or in Europe or in Australia or North America. I found it really transferable. So, you know, a miracle upon miracles, we don't actually work that differently, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that's one question that people asked me when I would recommend it. They would say, oh, yeah, but is it, you know, sure. is, it, is it the same kind of, you know, um, practice principles and, um, you know, sure. recommendations that we were, which I think is a very fair question. And, it's a great um, question, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I just wanted to reassure people, yes, it is internationally friendly. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much again, Marcy. And um, no doubt again, we will be chatting soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.